listen carefully to what people are saying. It's just really important for people to know that they're being heard. I think that's important in anything you do, whether it's a court or a zoning board of appeals or a planning board, wherever the lawyer is playing a role, it's so important to develop that trust. I think by being honest, owning up to problems if they're there, just being straightforward with whatever the issues are, whatever the proposed solutions are, and answering the questions in a forthright way. If you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. If you need to find out, go find out. Those give and takes develop that trust. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead, a podcast that challenges the notion that the law lags behind. I'm your host, Seagal Barnes. Each week, I invite a lawyer who's making powerful changes through extraordinary leadership. In each episode, we'll travel through another lawyer's life, identify what they do best, and then devise how to apply these concepts to your own world. So let's get to it. Welcome to Lawyers Who Lead. I'm your host, Sigal Barnes. Our next guest has actually been on the show before. I had the pleasure of interviewing her briefly at a conference in 2022, and I was so impressed with her story that I just had to invite her back. She is a principal and chief talent officer at Beverage and Diamond, a top-tier environmental law and litigation firm. In addition to her legal practice, she is responsible for developing and leading the firm's talent recruiting and retention strategy as part of the firm's overall vision and strategic plan. Please welcome our next lawyer who leads, Paula Schoecker. Paula, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very glad to be here. Well, first and foremost, it's very rare that I have the same person on the show twice, so I really appreciate your time. And I'm very excited to have more of an expansive version of your story since I only got a sneak peek when I interviewed you at the 2022 PDI conference last year. But before we get into it, I would love to ask you if you could tell me what your favorite moment so far today was, just to start our episode off with a little gratitude and to get a sense of a slice of your life. Well, I have to say it was walking around my garden. It's such a joy. And I have a little chickadee who's taken up residence in a little birdhouse that I put up. (laughs) So uh, it's quite joyful. So that was a very joyful moment. I love that gratitude. Thank you for that. All right. So, Paula, let's get into your lawyer origin story. How did it all start for you? It's a pretty interesting story, if I say so myself. In my high school yearbook, It has a little blurb about what someone intends to do. And mine said that I intend to be a lawyer. Little did I know that it would take me 30 years to get there. But I did finally become a lawyer. But there there were a lot of interesting things in between. After I left high school and went to college, about my second year in college, I started singing. I had always been a singer, played the guitar for many years. I was in the college choir. And I started singing at a pizza parlor. And... I just got hooked on singing and playing the guitar, and I loved playing for people. I loved the audience. And so I decided that I would leave college and become a professional singer. And so I did that. I was going to school in Ruston, Louisiana, and my family was in Shreveport, Louisiana. So I I started uh, singing in Shreveport, Louisiana, in bars, clubs, hotels for around eight years. And I loved that. But then I really decided that I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to get involved in business. So I started working in retail in Shreveport, then was working in a jewelry and gift store. And it was my first management experience. And then moved to Dallas, Texas, where I opened my own business, adding to that 
sort of management experience, opened a jewelry and gift service, selling high-end corporate gifts to Dallas-based companies. I did that for several years, and then for several unexpected reasons, I moved to New York. And after my family moved to New York, I went back to school. I got a master's degree in environmental studies from the Yale School of Forestry and JD from Pace Law School. So that was about 30 years after that high school statement. I then did a federal clerkship and and was fortunate to land at, at Beverage and Diamond as an environmental litigator. I love your story so much. What a wonderful example of how there's never one path to being a lawyer. And I love all the experiences that you bring. One question I do have is, so you go to Yale School of Forestry and you get a master's in environmental management. And and now, by the way, I should correct that. Now it's called the Yale School of Environment. Used to be School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, but now it's Yale School of the Environment. So what made you move from there to law school? Or did you go into this program knowing you would go into environmental law? It was a thought. When I went to Yale, I had become involved. If you remember the other part of the story, I didn't have my undergraduate degree when I got to New York. So I went back to school. And as part of my undergraduate that I finished up, I studied uh, environmental studies. And so through that, I became involved in, in the town that I live in, Harrison, New York, I got on the conservation commission for the town and then was appointed to the planning board in the town of Harrison. So I thought at the time when I was going to Yale and studying environmental uh, studies that I would be involved in land use in some way. So land use law, doing those types of things. I worked with Professor Nolan on his programs to teach municipal leaders about how to use the environmental laws that that you have or can create to preserve the environment. So I really thought that was the area that I was going to be involved in. I wasn't sure about law school, though, until I was ready to graduate from Yale and, again, had become familiar with friends with John Nolan, and he was a good influencer. He's at Pace Law School, and I was thinking of either doing a PhD or going to law school, and He convinced me that Pace Law School was the place I should go. So that's what I did. But at the time, I thought I would probably practice land use law because that's where my background was. And I was still on the planning board in the town of Harrison. I was on the soil and water conservation district for uh, Westchester County and really establishing my roots in the land use field. So a few questions on your experiences. I'm going to start with the earlier one first. So you said that you had your first management experience at a gift and jewelry store. And then afterwards, you started your own business doing corporate gifting. What would you say are some of the skills that you gained from those experiences that you still use today? I think everyone should have a stint in retail or in in that type of business. I think it's great for customer service. And even in the legal field, we are a customer service business. We serve our clients. And I think that those lessons that you learn about how to understand what people want, help them if they need help deciding what they want, and making sure they're happy with the service that you provided are lessons that absolutely have served a lifetime. I agree. When I was growing up, I didn't go straight into college. I was a waitress for a long time. So I learned fairly quickly how to deal with people and do a lot of active listening and sometimes having to deal with difficult people, but also being really grateful for the wonderful people that I encountered. And there's a lot of dynamics there that I think really help 
interpersonal skills when you work in those kind of environments. Absolutely. Agree. I never waited on tables, but that was actually what I was going to say as well, that everybody should either either work retail or or do or wait on tables because it's just a it's a great experience and you learn so much from it. One hundred percent. So on the same note, when you were working within like the different municipalities and then getting your your feet wet with land use, were there any skills or anything that you gained insight from in those situations that you were able to bring with you? Sure. I was in law school, but I was not a lawyer at the time. I had the opportunity to watch a lot of great lawyers, though. And I think that the couple of things really stuck with me through that experience. One was to listen carefully to what people are saying. Disputes come before those boards, problems arise. And it's just really important to listen and for people to know that they're being heard. I think that's important in anything you do is to just make sure that people know that you're listening and, and understanding what they say. And I think the other thing that was really a benefit to me was the ability to watch lawyers who came before the board. And I learned that the ability for whatever tribunal you're in front of, whether it's a court or, or a zoning board of appeals or a planning board, whatever it might be, wherever the lawyer is playing a role, it's so important for that court or that board to trust you and to develop that trust. I know that I saw many lawyers in front of the board and there were always some that I really trusted and that made a big difference. And so that I think was another just important lesson that I learned during that time. That's fascinating. How do you think a lawyer on that side could invoke trust? Well, I think by being honest was the main thing. Owning up to problems, if they're there, just being straightforward with whatever the issues are, whatever the proposed solutions are, and answering the questions in, in a forthright way. If you, if you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. If you need to find out, go find out. Those give and takes, I think, was just a lot of good lessons. So one of the things that I love about what you do today is that you are both a principal and the chief talent officer at Beverage and Diamond. When I first came in contact with you, I had never heard of a practicing attorney who was also a chief role like this and making so much impact in the organization outside of their practice. How did that evolve for you? And then also, what does that look like for you on a day to day? When I was uh, on the management committee at Beverage and Diamond, we went through a period, as all law firms do, where several associates had left the firm and there was concern by the leadership that we just wanted to be sure why people were leaving, how we were doing on retention, were there systemic issues at the firm we really needed to look at. So just really take a deep dive and see where we are. So I was appointed to lead a task force on talent retention. And as part of the recommendation from the task force, I should say, one of the recommendations from the task force was to professionalize some of our recruiting and retention processes and programs. And one suggestion was to hire a chief talent officer. I had no intention of that person being me at all. I thought we should go get somebody who knows what they're doing. About um, Several months after I wrote the report and recommendation on behalf of the task force and the management committee had reviewed it, the managing principal came to me and said, I think you need to be that person. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not that person. 
you need to go find someone else. But he was quite persistent. As I thought about it more, I thought this is a way to create something, create a position that doesn't exist at the firm, hopefully live up to those recommendations that I made in the report, get some of those things done. So I took a giant leap and decided to take on the position. I took on the position in January of 2020. What I do on a day-to-day changed in March of 2020 when the world went remote because of the pandemic. But I would say on a daily basis, there are a couple of areas. There's many areas of focus, but I would just, broadly speaking, there are areas of process and procedures trying to make sure that we have good processes in place for all of the things that are encompassed by the position. And maybe it's because of my environmental background, but I look at what I do as being within a talent ecosystem. And I'm really into uh, systems thinking. If you look at the whole talent scheme as a system, you see all the various parts, whether it's recruiting and retention and professional development, succession planning, but many things are in that system. How do they all interact? How does one support the other? How are they speaking to each other? So that's what I am always trying to do is look at all those various pieces, make sure that within the firm, people are communicating not undermining one thing by something we do in another piece of that system. One of the biggest parts of what I do on a daily basis is actually connect with the people at the firm. The people part of the position is so critically important. A law firm is people. Everyone plays an important role and helping people find ways to find meaning in their work, to work on trouble, problems if they have them, things that may come up in their experience working with them on paths to success in the future, mentoring, and just answering questions, trying to help people succeed and be the best that they can be is another big part of what I do. I work very closely with the management committee in our firm. So when there are questions that they have about recruiting strategy or how do we benchmark something, what's going on in the industry, providing that information to firm management is also, I think, a really important role that I play. So someone who might be new to the management committee or someone else doesn't have to always start learning how to find those types of things. Being immersed into the professional development field and finding those resources, I think, has been a great resource for the firm. Yeah, you're like this internal expert that everyone can go to when it comes to all things people at a law firm. It's fantastic. Well, I try. (laughs) I try. We do have an HR person who's really the people expert, and I rely heavily on her too for those HR-related issues. But yes, there's always a lot going on. So can you give me some examples of the programs that you've instituted at Beverage and Diamond or perhaps some of the pain points that you've helped solve? Sure. A a couple things come to mind. One thing that I did was start uh, Beverage and Diamond University, BDU, and to be the infrastructure for all of our professional development and training for staff and attorneys. We had a lot of things that we did, but there wasn't an infrastructure for that, something you could point at and say, that's what we do. And in doing that, I had a lot of fun creating the college atmosphere out of BDU, and we have a little mascot. 
as time progressed, we've been able to develop a video library of lots of courses, both internal and external. So that's constantly a, a work in progress, as is everything. But developing BDU, I think, was one of the most fun things and best things that, that I've done. As part of that, I developed a, a boot camp for new associates and new staff. I work primarily on the content for the associates, and I work with others for the content for staff, although it's very similar. But what I learned during the talent retention task force process is that what you know about an organization can depend on who you know. And that can impact, definitely impact people's development. And it tends to have an even bigger impact on diverse associates. As I was reading about the impact on diverse associates and inclusion and what we could do to improve inclusion. So the boot camp is essentially kind of everything you need to know about how, how the world works at the law firm. We talk about a lot of those things in onboarding and orientation, but who can remember what you learn in those first two weeks or month that you're at the firm? So we, we have this program that, that really goes into more detail about how the firm is governed, how people get onto committees, how things work. And it's a workshop, for lack of a better word, where people can then ask questions and get down and understand more about how committees work, what they do really plays a role in the success of the firm overall. So I think the boot camp is another thing that that was just really an important thing. Is there like a specific benchmark when boot camps start for associates? We do it at our firm-wide retreat, so we can do it in person. And at least that was the plan. We did it at our first retreat in 2019. <laughs> And then we didn't have a retreat for a while. So the boot camp got a little bit put back this year. And I guess this is another great thing that, that we did. A lot of people were involved in it, but people were really feeling the fact that they hadn't met so many colleagues. We'd hired many people over the two and a half years of the pandemic and especially associates. So we did an associate fly-in where we brought all the associates together in our Washington, D.C. office. And we, we did the boot camp there. So it's meant to be at the retreat, whenever the retreat occurs. But we have many boot camps in the meantime for bringing people up to speed. They could watch the videos if they want to. But it's meant to be an in-person experience. We're revamping our onboarding program as well. And we're, we're trying to capture more of that over a longer period of time in the onboarding too. So it's meant to be reinforcing. So you have a longer period of onboarding and then a boot camp. So as I said, it's a work in process. Absolutely. You learn, you iterate. One of the mantras from a leadership perspective that I always like to think about and execute on is repeat, repeat, repeat until they're like, stop telling me. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Because then you know that it's sunk in. <laughs> exactly. So let's get into our rapid fire questions. First one is what does leadership in law mean to you? Leadership in law, and I'm looking at it from the perspective of a chief talent officer and not a, because leadership in law could mean so many different things. But I think it means leading with empathy, listening to people, being positive and creating a positive atmosphere where you are, building on strengths, building people up instead of being overly critical. So I think that leaders drive workplace perceptions. So being positive, 
and supportive and listening and building people up helps us to promote people's sense of meaning in their work. One of the things that you said was building people up versus being critical. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Sure. There are many ways to motivate people. Uh, what I've been learning, I've also been taking courses to be certified as an, as an executive coach. And what I've learned through that process and the other reading that I do is that working with people from their strengths and building them in that way is much more productive and gets much better results for everyone than just pointing out the things that people do wrong. Because just pointing out something that someone does wrong really doesn't give them a path forward. But you can have a conversation with a better result by just being more positive. One of the things you said is you're getting certified in coaching. I'm in the process of uh, getting my certification. Is there a certain segment of the firm that you're looking to coach first? I've been talking with leadership and thinking about a coaching program for the firm, talking with people who do that at other law firms. There are other law firms that have coaching programs, internal programs. So I think it's a combination of an internal program focusing on associates first. And then also bringing in external coaches for leadership development and development as well. Still very much in its early stages of development, but I, I really appreciate what NALP and others have done to promote coaching as a, an integral skill and approach to management and law firm life that I think is really important. Excellent. What is something that other lawyers seem to misunderstand about the work you do? Most people don't understand the scope and the complexity of the position because it's hard to explain. I mean, we've been talking about it a little bit here, but there's a lot of detailed things that, that happen every day that are not visible. There's a lot of work that's not visible. You know when things are broken, then things are visible. But when things are going along okay, it's invisible really. You don't really know what people are doing behind the scenes. So actually this year, I am going around to our offices and talking more with people about the position to help them understand better the types of things I do and how I can help them and understand better what their needs are and what I can help them with. It makes me think of a friend of mine. She said this once to me. I'll give her a shout out, Sean Salmon. She said, when you look at a ballet, it looks effortless. They're beautiful. They dance. You enjoy yourself. But the time, effort, work that is taken to make something look effortless is astronomical. So yeah. when things are running really smoothly, even though it's not visible, it means there has been an immense amount of work done to make it look effortless. That's right. <laughs> I agree. Yes. If there was one thing you could change about the legal industry, what would it be? I think the one thing that I would love to see is the profession increasing well-being and wellness within the profession, instilling practices in the profession that support wellness. It can be a very stressful profession. I think having positive and empathetic leaders is a really good start to increasing well-being within the profession. Leaders certainly influence culture, and culture influences the quality of life and wellness what that will take to, to increase wellness and well-being. I'm not sure what the answers are, but I, that would be something that I would love to see would be just a less stressful position because it is fantastic. It's a wonderful career. It's very exciting, very intellectually stimulating. And I just wish we could work out the work-life work balance.
What is a piece of practical advice you can give to our listeners? These are leaders and future leaders in law. I think this might follow on my other answer about one thing I could change. And the one thing that I think that leaders can do for themselves is take care of themselves because you're going to be in a much better position to help others if you're feeling okay yourself. So it's much like caregivers who are busy taking care of others and tend to not take care of themselves. Really important to step back, take care of yourself, make sure that your mind has and you have space to to feel well. And then I think you, your best self to your work, to the people you lead. Well, you just gave me the best segue to the next question, which is, what do you do to take care of yourself? What do you do for self-care? I still sing and play the guitar. So that is something that is always like a little, a little mini vacation and still very meaningful for me. My sons are both musicians as well. So playing with them is fantastic. I play golf. Golf is, a, is a, something that I really enjoy. So I, I can't do that every day by any means. It takes too long. But, but I do that whenever I can and get out and enjoy just beautiful places on the golf course. I love the field of what I do. So I'm constantly reading books on leadership and positive psychology, coaching, those types of things. So intellectually, that that's another sort of vacation for me. I love to, I just love to dive into those things and think about them. So all those things. And then I, I have a, a little dog. I'm showing her to you now. <laughs> yeah. Our listeners can't see, but Paula <laughs> just lifted the most cute, puffy. <laughs> She's a little Pomeranian. Her name is Harper. Oh my God, Harper is adorable. <laughs> I wish everyone else could see Harper right now. I also love this image of you singing and playing guitar with your sons. I think yeah. that's fantastic. And, you know, I'm not going to hold you to it, but if I bring my guitar to the next conference, maybe there's a session. I don't know. Hey, <laughs> let's do it. Maybe there's a podcast where it's just me and you singing and playing guitar. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Why not? I'm game. Wonderful, Paula. Thank you so much for being on the show. If anyone wanted to reach out or connect with you, what's the best way they can do that? Uh, they can reach out through email at pjs at bdlaw.com. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show, Paula. Thank you, Sigal. It was a pleasure. Thank you, leaders and future leaders, for listening today. We have a new guest every week, so don't forget to join us next week. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe or follow us anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow at Lawyers Who Lead on social. Let's celebrate and continue to build a community of leaders in law together. Lawyers Who Lead is made possible by Lawline, the leading online platform for lawyers who want engaging, relevant CLE and professional growth content. For over 20 years, Lawline has helped hundreds of thousands of attorneys level up by providing award-winning courses in hard-to-find areas and high-demand fields. They have so many courses to choose from that are actually really interesting to listen to and watch. That's why Lawline's rated the highest in the industry with almost five stars and over a thousand verified reviews on Trustpilot. Lawyers who lead listeners get $100 off Lawline's unlimited annual subscription, which means you can take as many courses as you want for a really good price. Just visit lawline.com slash podcast to get the special offer. Check out Lawline for the best content for leaders and future leaders in legal.